Hello, welcome to the first episode of a new series, the Net Hero Podcast with me, Stuart Bowes. We want to shake things up and uh, you know what we're like at Future Net Zero. We want to bring you something different all the time. And I think it's time for us to now look at Net Zero in a different way. So this new podcast series, which will be ongoing, will be looking at three different areas of the Net Zero debate. One, you'll be hearing from leading voices, whether they be ministers, CEOs, academics, people of real note about what we're doing in terms of the policy and the science and the direction of travel. The second will be real people, businesses, big or small. If you're in the net zero world, if you're trying to do things to get you on the net zero pathway, we want to hear from you. You'll hear from people who are doing all the things you're doing or facing challenges the same as your business or public sector organisation. And the third part will be basically just stories that I think are just damn interesting, like the history of how we got to where we are in the debate around climate change. We'll be talking about animals shape-shifting in a few weeks' time, and also whether that we should be looking at the way we eat and what we do. So things that will just make you go, well, I never well knew that. We could swear if you wanted. Today's episode, to kick us off, is about something that I think is very relevant right now. This week, we've had all the debate about energy prices because of the wholesale price of gas rocketing by 250%. And really, we've had a big debate about whether we have enough energy security. On Monday, the Energy Secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng, made a statement to Parliament, and he talked about making sure that our future is renewable. But in part of that future, the cleaner, greener future, which gives us energy security, he also talked about today's subject, nuclear energy. This is what he had to say. Thanks to the steps that we have made as a government, renewable energy sources have quadrupled in terms of gigawattage of capacity uh, since uh, 2010. Far more than quadrupled, in fact. But there is still clearly a lot more we can do in this area. That is why we have committed to approve at least one large scale new nuclear project in the next few years and are backing the next generation of advanced nuclear technology with £385 million helping to attract billions of pounds in private capital and create tens of thousands of jobs. So there you go, commitment to Hinkley Point and more nuclear power stations, £385 million hoping to attract, as he said, billions in capital and of course jobs. So where are we with the nuclear debate? How important is it to our green, clean, net zero future? In my view, it's vital. I think we need nuclear for baseload, but a lot of people think it's a bus technology, something from the early 20th century. Well, our first guest on the podcast this week is Caroline Longman, Account Director at the National Nuclear Laboratory. And we started having a discussion about where we are right now in the history of atomic power, where we expect to go in terms of whether renewable energy and nuclear is our future, how the public looks at it. And we started with a little reminiscence way back when the start of our nuclear journey happened in the 1950s. This is Calder Hall on the Cumberland coast in the northwest of England. The date is the 17th of October, 1956. It is with pride that I now open Calder Hall, Britain's first atomic power station. 
great to to have you with us on a kind of a, a topic I think that's it's really kind of quite I wouldn't want to say the word divisive but it really is one that sort of sharpens minds and um, can you just tell us very briefly what does the National Nuclear Laboratory do? Yes of course so the National Nuclear Laboratory is a, is a government-owned organisation um, in a strap line we're, we're the UK's National Laboratory for, for Nuclear Fission so although we're government-owned we're independently operated and, and we've got our roots in the research arm of, of BNFL so go, we go back a, a, a long time. Yeah. Our key goal is to deliver nuclear research for the benefit of society We've got four world-leading laboratories uh, in the northwest of England, uh, and we deli deliver groundbreaking nuclear research and development. Um, really importantly, and I think for, for this podcast, um, we, 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 are, we have a clean energy agenda, um, which we've recently published on our website. Uh, but really, we recognise for our research and development ex expertise in, in reactors and across, and, and across the whole of the fuel cycle, but actually... You know, we, we're really clear that without nuclear, uh, the UK is not going to meet its net zero goals in time. And without NNL's work, the UK nuclear sector isn't going to be able to deliver on what's required. So we're really now looking forward and focusing on the fact that nuclear is already the single largest and most reliable zero carbon energy source in the UK. But actually, advanced nuclear technologies hold even more potential for generating clean hydrogen and electricity. So we are really focused now at an accelerated pace to deliver the evidence base to support how nuclear energy can can decarbonize our energy system along with along with other other energy um, technologies what when you say the clean energy agenda mm -hmm. you said you have a plan what do you mean by that so the clean energy agenda is part of nnl's four major focus areas and we focus on on other aspects you know the use of nuclear energy for for medical purposes etc so the, the clean energy agenda is one of our focus areas, and it's all about what do we need to do. It's, it's our own strategy on what the national lab needs to do to enable nuclear energy and a zero energy system. So, you know, recognising that a combination of large, small and advanced nuclear technologies are all needed. There yeah. is an R&D programme that needs to be delivered at an accelerated rate to help us understand how nuclear energy can deliver cost competitive electricity, but also in the future cost competitive heat and hydrogen um, and how it can deliver that in time for 2050. So that's what we mean when we talk about a clean energy agenda. Caroline, let's just go back a bit and, and go to the sort of history of our nuclear industry in, in, in the UK. I mean, I assume it started kind of post-war, did it? Yeah, I mean, nuclear energy was, was discovered in wartime and very quickly then it was recognised for its ability to generate uh, electricity. The UK was really at the forefront of this right from, you know, the 50s and 60s. We, we became a global leader in civil nuclear technology very quickly. We, we led the world in this scientific area. And at that point in time, we had a, a rapidly expanding research and development programme and power station deployment programs soon thereafter in terms of the UK resulted in a very rapid nuclear build program and the development of those key nuclear sites where R&D was conducted and certainly demonstration reactors were built. So some of the key areas in the UK, UK are obviously Sellafield and Winfrith and Harwell in Oxfordshire where a number of nuclear research reactors were deployed to really understand and how we can harness the potential of 
of nuclear energy in, in the UK. We look at the, the, the you know, the, the power stations and they're all mainly in the north because of the coal seams, you know, that run through kind of Pennines and all of that. It, nuclear stock, you could some sort of build it anywhere, can't you really, I suppose? Or is it, does it have to have certain things it, it needs? Mm-hmm. So I wonder why there was quite a lot of nuclear power up in the, in the northwest for some reason. So you, you can't build nuclear power stations anywhere. We have a very um, strict uh, regulatory regime and, and that involves the licensing of what we call the nuclear site. And associated with that licensed site is some significant safety and regulatory requirements that have to be complied with in order no no sure i mean what what i meant was that you know you're not you don't need a fuel source right next to it do you you don't like like you don't need a coal seam or you don't need to be near the sea because there's lots of wind coming over yeah you don't need a fuel source as such fuel is obviously an important commodity for a nuclear power station traditionally uh, nuclear reactors are deployed in coastal locations because right. you need boiling water moving forward that might not necessarily be the case but traditionally when we're talking about historically yeah larger nuclear power stations are deployed near large volumes of water for that reason we haven't had a, a death as such directly from from a nuclear accident in this country. I know there were some small incidents back, I think, in the in, in the seventies with what was called Windscale, which is now Sellafield now. But yeah. you know, you know, is it intrinsically a lot safer than people think? Of course. I mean, you know, as I said, it's it's sometimes where there's a a single highly publicised nuclear accident. I think it's easier to just. To, to, to focus in on that uh, rather than look at actually the nuclear accidents, or the, sorry, the deaths from other energy, you know, energy generation sources. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately, nuclear has got one of the lowest mortality rates of all types of power generation when you consider the deaths per unit energy produced. So I think sometimes we need to really take a step back and, and, and look at nothing is risk free. Other electricity, you know, other electricity generation technologies, so coal, gas, have a much higher mortality rate. But it, the publicity and the, you know, the way that feeds into public perception is not always done in in a way that looks at everything in a in a reasonable and fair way. So I think it's always worth looking at. Yes, there has been, you know, one or two worldwide some very high. Chernobyl yeah. and obviously yeah, yeah. Fukushima. Yeah, I mean they they grab the headlines. But I mean, you know, the, the Chernobyl incident was a very different one to what happened with Fukushima, where actually, you know, the facts are people didn't directly die from the, the exposure. It was the other things that happened. And then obviously mm-hmm. it was the, the thing. I think nuclear has a, a problem that I see, which is that because when it goes wrong, it's so big. And because we have an association with wrongly but we have an exception nuclear means nuclear bombs and you know Hiroshima and all of that stuff mm-hmm. there's a public kind of disconnect between what is reality and what is basically fear of it there is a public fear of radiation isn't there yeah. because you can't see it you can't hear it yeah. you don't know when you're being exposed to etc there's a fear of the unknown and there's been this this historic kind of mystery around around radiation radiation exposure as a result of you know i don't know having a dental x-ray or flying flying to spain or something like that you know we're constantly exposed to radiation and when you look at exposure to radiation as a result of nuclear energy it's not 
even on the scale to what we what we're exposed to as a result of day-to-day -day living and it's, it's really, background radiation yeah yeah i think there's a story a really a, a really strong story to be told around the, the benefit to society that radiation has has provided in terms of of medical treatments, diagnostic and, and so forth, you know, sterilizations, um, or I mean, the, the, the benefit to society far outweighs any detriment, you know, it's not, it's not even on the same scale. So I think there's a real story that we need to tell around that and, and public perception and benefits of radiation. So I think you're right. I think, you know, that that's, that's something that we really need to, we really need to get our heads around and, and address that. I think the thing that people will agree, though, and, and I also have this, I worry about the, the, the nuclear spent fuel, the waste, right? Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, my, my view is that nuclear power is inherently a lot safer than people think. And I think, you know, accidents are very, very, very rare. But I do worry about the, the spent nuclear fuel. We all know that we're either going to shoot it into space or bury it or something like that. That's the one thing that I think, the, the, you know, maybe the laboratory is looking into it, but it's a big challenge, isn't it, for the industry? Because you could say, you can argue that once you've built it, okay, there's a cost of the carbon of the concrete and all of that, but once you've built the thing, they kind of run for themselves for about 60 years, which is producing nice, low, clean energy. But at the end, you've got a hell of a bill to pay in terms of where you're going to put that stuff. So where's your answer to that and what you're looking at in terms of waste the nuclear waste question sure so i mean waste is is, is often quoted isn't it as a, as a strong argument against nuclear yeah but when you look at the facts around this you know nuclear waste is, is incredibly compact for the amount of energy generated it can be controlled it can be stored stored safely but for incredibly long periods um, when we look at the amount of nuclear waste, and it's it's really it's, it's again it's like radio, it's putting it into perspective. The the total amount of nuclear waste that is estimated to be produced over the next hundred years is 5.1 million tons. So just for context, the UK produces 5.3 million tons of hazardous waste from other business and domestic uses every single year. So when you think of the total amount of waste produced per unit energy, it's, abs it, it's absolutely tiny. So there's a volume argument here. There's also a safety argument. No one has ever died as a result of nuclear waste. So when you look at the figures around the years of life lost from burning fossil fuels, it, it really puts this into, you know, the nuclear waste problem into context. We do have a policy which cites internationally recognised solutions for safe long-term disposal. And, you know, that's through a GDF, a geological disposal facility, which will keep waste away from causing harm, you know, from the radiation until it's no longer a risk. But I mean, that is that is millions of years, isn't it? I mean, we're talking, you know, the half-life of uh, uh, uranium, you'll probably correct me, but I think it's about 200 and something years, isn't it? I can't remember what it is, but, you know, you're talking sort of generations and that's where people also have this idea that you know we're just dumping it on the future generations they'll have to deal with our mess yeah i mean it, it, so the half-life of uranium is it's, it's it's thousands of years it stays radioactive for a long time but you know the engineered solutions that are being put forward and this is not just in the uk it's recognized across the yeah. world is that you know it is feasible possible to keep that waste away from from any harm until it's a position where it's no longer a risk and that and i know i know this is going back now where the risk assessments have been done um for gdfs you know they 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 look at all sorts of worst case scenarios yeah. so 
earthquakes and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of the, the volume of waste, the engineering solutions that are being put in place, I think that, you know, we're looking at a very well managed, safe process for disposing of a very small amount of waste compared to other technologies. And I think, again, it's that nuclear waste perception that, that yeah. gets out of context with actually what you know what is safe and uh, uh, and what is a, a good solution where, where are we putting our waste right now in the uk so at the moment for for very high level waste these are kind of typically stored safely in controlled cooling ponds uh, or specially designed facilities for a few years but could be as long as a few decades and that interim, interim storage allows for you know a good deal of the radioactivity to to naturally decay making making them less harmful so for the small of, um, you know, for the very small amount of waste that can't be recycled, and, and we are, you know, we, we are looking to try and recover and recycle nearly 100% of the uranium back into the fuel cycle. What can't be recycled, I think we're focusing on um, hosting, looking for a community to host a, a, a geological disposal facility. That's going to be tough though, isn't it? <laughs> hey, would you like a big nuclear store underneath your house? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's the government goes out to consultation in this and and has been for some time. There is industrial benefits to having well, having any in, in industry uh, near your house in terms of um, either a big nuclear site or big industrial site in terms of jobs and skills, etc. Communities are created. So so there are advantages in that. You know, I think it's around, you know, the, the high, higher level waste is is just under a thousand meter cubed um that's going to be generated over the over the next hundred years i mean that's that's just a small handful of double decker buses in volume it's it's it, it is really really quite small volume so i think we you know it's, it's really important to take a step back and look at look at this in context with not having nuclear energy as part of our energy system another one that really gets thrown at the industry is it's just too bloody expensive you know <laughs> the the whole kind of you know, Ed Davies' contracts were difference, you know, the whole strike price that was agreed. A lot of people said this is just crazy for, to allow Hinkley to happen. How do you understand the cost element? Because there is a lot of cost in nuclear, which is why generally it is state-run things rather than private companies doing it, because you just got to have the muscle and the finances of state to do it. That, that's the argument that a lot of people say, this is not viable long-term as an energy solution for us, because it's just too damn expensive. What makes nuclear expensive, I think, is, is two key things. The first one is we don't do it very often. So it's, it's been quite a number of years since we last built a nuclear station. So we lose the benefit of, of learning by doing. Um, yeah. So, you know, building a fleet, you can access the cost reductions by doing things more than once in a generation. You know, we've seen the, the cost of wind drop, wind power drop really very quickly, but in the early days, wind electricity was, was nearly double the cost of nuclear, but those costs were reduced through, through learning. And nuclear can go through that same learning, you know, learning process that could reduce cost. You know, and the key is nuclear energy is, is totally proven technology. Nuclear is not as expensive as, as most people think, and it's the financing that makes it expensive. So, so you need to take, take a long-term view. A nuclear power station can operate for 60 years. Um, and if you can reduce the finance rates, uh, to, to government borrowing, you, you halve the cost of nuclear overnight. So, uh, you know, in terms of addressing the, the cost of, you know, nuclear, it, it really, it, in terms of, you know, the, we, the, there's modelling done um, recently by governments, which uh, shows that, you know, the government's energy system modelling indicates that 
in 2050, the lowest cost, uh, low carbon scenarios require significant proportion nuclear power. You know, that's that's modelling that the government are, are really looking at. And the reason is because nuclear can run at any time, at any point of the year, so so can provide reliable power to the grid for decades. We, we do need to take a long term view when we're looking at the costs. And that would make the entire system cheaper, you know, despite being more expensive individually up front to construct. Yeah, I get that. Look, I mean, I've been sort of knocking the nuclear industry in this conversation because I think these are all the things that people do have legitimate worries about. But let's let's take a slightly different tack. One of the other things, say I believe all you've said and it sounds all great to me. We're moving to a decentralized energy system, aren't we, Caroline? You know, the, the government wants that, that strategic policy. We're looking at local microgrids and all that. Nuclear is still kind of this, you know, behemoth of you build a big plant and then it chugs into the grid. Well, if the grid becomes much more disparate in the future, much smarter, is there the need for this? So, yeah, I mean, so nuclear's all, always been associated, hasn't it, in the past with, with generating large base loads. Yeah. You know, the, the, but there is there is no reason, and we're certainly moving towards the thinking that nuclear can be part of a decentralised energy system. So new developments like like small modular reactors, so much smaller modular builds, uh, much faster construction, reduce the cost of finance, etc. Um, uh, you know, are, are in development and expect to be deployed. You know, deployed this decade. Um, and also, Sorry, can I just interrupt you there? Can you explain to the audience what they are? Because I've heard of these S SMR, they call it small modular reactor. What does that mean? Is it like a mini nuclear power station in, in, in I don't know, the size of a building or the or size of a bus? Or, you know, can, can I fit it into fit it in my back garden like a transformer? What, what are we talking about? Um, so, yeah, I mean, effectively, yeah, I mean, they are uh, smaller, so so it's using current technology, it's using yeah. uh, water technology, water cooled technology, um, and the idea is that you are um, using, it is a smaller version of the gigawatt scale reactors that we're, we're used to, which provides, you know, huge loads of base load electricity, the grid, but we're looking at more flexible deployment, uh, flexible uh, generation of electricity. And, you know, where you have smaller uh, reactors, you may have less onerous um, restrictions in terms of siting. And what, what sort of shape would that be? Just give me a, are we talking about the size of, I don't know, uh, four or five buses? Are we talking the size of, you know, something that would fit in your garden shed, like a, like a trend? transformer or are we talking you know massive buildings i mean again it, it depends on the design i'm not i'm not talking about any particular design um the current smrs that are in design are, are not the size of your back garden they're significantly football pitch size but, um right. but it very much depends on the design of but they take less infrastructure to build and everything like that yeah, less infrastructure to build, quicker to build, modular off-site construction, so you can start doing a lot of the construction off a nuclear license site, which can save costs and also really allows for repeatability. So you start to get the cost reductions when you start to build one more, two, so you can build, you know, first of a kind, maybe more expensive, but as you get your learning really quickly, you can get to reduce those costs and those, those, those reactors can be deployed more flexibly within an energy system. So I think fundamentally the message is that nuclear energy can be very much a part of a of a decentralized energy system um, as well as providing that base load we shouldn't move away from the importance that you know we rely on 20 percent of our, uh, electricity from yes at the moment 
I suppose one of the things I want to explore now is, is really the science of it all, because you know, you, you're a laboratory, so you must be doing some science, Caroline. They must be doing lots of science there. What sort of science are you doing uh, at the NNL? Okay, so um, in, in terms of NNL, yes, we do, we do, we do do science. We, we, Good to know. <laughs> <laughs> we have um, over, you know, a thousand people. Um, many of them are, you know, globally recognised world-leading nuclear scientists and engineers. And we deliver research uh, across, across the entire nuclear cycle. I mean, I can cite a number of uh, programmes and examples, I think, uh, I think of a good, a good one to, to highlight is what we call the Advanced Nuclear uh, the advanced fuel cycle program, so AFCP. And that's all around developing the next generation of nuclear fuel. So obviously nuclear fuel is a, is a, is a high value commodity that needs to be replaced throughout for 60 years of a reactor lifetime. If the UK and the UK's you know, academia and supply chain can develop the capability to develop and manufacture these fuels moving, you know, moving forward into the future. Um, and we do think nuclear, you know, advanced nuclear is gonna, is gonna play a massive part of the global energy system. Being able to make and manufacture the fuels for these reactors is an incredible industrial opportunity for the UK in terms of our own industry, in terms of leveling up, developing skills, developing skilled jobs um, in, in, in areas of the country where, where you may not. So that's a government-based uh, funded programme. Uh, it's currently, uh, it's an over 50 million pound programme. It's one of the biggest nuclear research and development programmes uh, of a generation. And we've been really making great, you know, really big steps to, to, to forward in, in being able to manufacture, one day manufacture the fuels for these advanced reactors. So it's a really exciting programme. Um, and we deliver that in partnership with, with government, in partnership with the nuclear supply chain and academia. So that's, that's a good one to, to focus on. Let's talk about the kind of uh, elephant-sized atom in the room, uh, fusion. You know, people have talked about it. First of all, what is fusion? What's the difference between that and fission? And are we ever going to get to fusion? Okay, right. So yes, fusion's another technology that, that, that harnesses power contained within the nucleus of an atom itself. So whereas nuclear fission splits large atoms like uranium to release their energy, fusion looks at combining very small atoms to make energy instead. So there's really quite a lot of crossover technologies shared between fission and fusion, you know, such as material science and advanced robotics. So the UK Atomic Energy Authority, UKEA, looks after the UK's fusion R&D programme, much as the NNL looks after our, the UK's fission R&D programme. And we work closely with the UKEA and other national labs to, to, to make sure, you know, all of these nuclear technologies can contribute to a future energy system. But, but we recognise that, you know, as with all energy sources, no one type of technology can solve it all. And fission and fusion have, have roles to play, you know, both have roles to play in helping us decarbonise our energy sector. Fission remains, uh, you know, a, a real key pillar of UK energy research landscape. Um, the UK has announced major investment in a um, fusion reactor with a net zero output due to be op operational by 2040s. Are we really likely to get it though? Because I read about fusion when I was a kid and I'm 53. You know, it's one of those things that, you know, people say, oh yeah, we're almost there, we're almost there. Yeah. And we might as well talk about teleportation. It, I mean, realistically, I'm, am I going to see fusion in my lifetime or is it going to be something that my great grandkids will see? 
So, I mean, in, in terms of the, you know, the, the R&D program is really active at the moment. There's large teams working on this. You don't tend to see fusion as, as part of a 2050 zero net zero energy system okay. as a rule. But, but after, you know, it could become crucial after that point if we can overcome those engineering scientific challenges. So you don't think it's one of those things that, you know, everyone keeps saying, oh, it's, it's, it's there, it's almost there. We're talking about a good 50, 60 years minimum before we can actually say it's a regular source of how we, we have power. Because it's the energy used to make fusion is the problem, isn't it? That's why it's done in the sun and not much nowhere else. Yeah, I think that, you know, the opinion, opinion is divided. From a point of view of, of a national lab, we, as I say, you know, net zero energy system proposals, I haven't seen fusion as, as a key yeah. part of that. But, you know, recognising that there is major investment and major activity going on, you know, going on now, it's, 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 it's you know, it's, it's hard to see fusion not playing a part in, in a future energy system. And, and I think I would be probably being pretty brave to put some kind of a date on when then that was happening. <laughs> all right, we'll, we'll, we'll let that one pass. Uh, before we end, you know, this whole conversation is all about net zero. Let's, let's, let's end with, you know, nuclear and net zero. I mean, you started at the beginning saying, look, you know, nuclear is part of the solution. We've talked a bit about kind of big, you know, base load power. One of the other things I suppose that's really interesting is whether nuclear could be a pathway to clean hydrogen this green hydrogen people are talking about um because the problem with hydrogen as everyone kind of knows is that most of it's produced from the oil and gas sector so it's not exactly pretty clean to begin with how does nuclear fit in with the whole hydrogen load because for, for the audience they'll probably understand most of them will understand but hydrogen is that key to big kind of moving big things whether that be ships or trains or or maybe planes you know, that's where you'll see hydrogen much more than we'll see moving our cars around. So does nuclear have a role in releasing hydrogen, to put it in a better term, so that it can it can help us to decarbonise? Yeah, so I think you said it really. You know, here in the UK, the Climate Change Committee has said to get to net zero, we need 270 terawatt um, hours of hydrogen by 2050. So that's that's like the same as saying that within 30 years, we've got to create a hydrogen economy that's the same size as the total amount of electricity we use today. And I think, you know, you said we're, we're highly reliant on, on um, technologies, uh, for example, blue hydrogen, um, electrolysis as well. Again, electrolysis is only predicted by the Climate Change Committee to, to support around 20% of the total hydrogen demand. So we do have, we do have a problem to solve in terms of producing hydrogen at scale and at cost. Um, if we're going to produce enough hydrogen for, for a net zero um, energy system. So nuclear plays its part. We, we, you know, we've been looking at this at the National Lab for a year now around the potential to produce scale cost competitive hydrogen from all reactor technologies. So, you know, gigawatt scale and small modular reactors can enable electrolyzer technology to be deployed in much greater capacities yeah. and that could be economically attractive for, for large plants but also potentially excess heat from these plants can be used to drive steam electrolysis and that increases the electrolyzer efficiency so really you know what differentiates nuclear technology here in in, in terms of hydrogen production is is the high capacity factor and ability to use both heat and electro electricity to drive down costs 
and that addresses the intimacy of renewables um, and, and, and that will enable nuclear energy to you know reach the right price points by which it can displace oil and gas. So in terms of you know governments, the, the government have released the, the hydrogen strategy in recent weeks which mm -hmm. really does recognise the role of nuclear energy to, to, to support um, large-scale hydrogen production and we at the NNL are leading the way in the research and the evidence needed to ensure that nuclear can can reach those price points and I think in terms of hydrogen production you know the first thing is that really to drill home is that this is existing technology this isn't technology of the future we could make scale hydrogen from existing nuclear technologies and there's something else really important to mention too and that and that's the importance of, of nuclear energy and habitat conversation, uh, conservation. With nature declining at unprecedented rates through habitat degradation and loss of an overexploitation, you know, we, we, we really need to look at how we optimise our land usage with energy production. And there's a report by um, Lucy Catalyst that's quite interesting. It says for the UK to use kind of solar PV generated yeah. hydrogen to replace current oil, you'd require an area the size of Wales. And if we're going to use offshore wind, you'd need most of the North Sea. So it's really bringing home the mm. fact that high energy density of nuclear and actually we do have the technology to generate hydrogen. And a government's invested in an advanced reactor demonstration programme, which is announced in the 10-point plan. Those reactors can deliver very high temperatures where you can start to unlock really efficient ways of producing hydrogen. So this is really an active area in government and the national lab at the moment to start to push this forward and at an accelerated rate and push this opportunity for nuclear and hydrogen forward at a really fast rate because because we recognize that you know we have to we have to start delivering the r d programs and getting the demonstrations up and running if we're going to be if nuclear energy is going to be generating hydrogen on a commercial scale by 2050 and that and that's our ambition to end with, Caroline, people don't really like people like me, journalists. I think state agents are the worst. Journalists are pretty low. What do you say to people when people say, you meet them in the pub and say, oh, I work in the nuclear industry? Well, um, what I would say, and I think it's sort of five points here, you know, energy sector generates 35 gigaton of carbon dioxide annually. Yeah. Um, to get to net zero, we've got to do something very, very quickly if we're going to address that. Yeah. Nuclear energy generates no direct carbon or greenhouse gas emissions. It's got one of the lowest life cycle carbon emissions of all generation technologies. You know, its reliability is 80 to 90 percent compared to wind at 30 to 40 percent or solar at 10 to 25 percent. And, you know, along with the pl long plant life, nuclear is comparatively affordable, especially when you factor in storage costs for renewables. It's also got the lowest, we talked about it, the lowest mortality rate of all types of power generation. Um, and, you know, new, annually, nuclear waste is significantly less than the volumetric waste from, you know, retired solar panels and wind turbine blades, etc. So, mm -hmm. so I think, you know, in terms of if, if you know... We, That'd be an interesting have, argument in the pub. <laughs> yes, well... <laughs> Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's what I say, you know, if, you, if you're in the pub and you're making the case for, you know, there's, there's five areas here. And if you, you know, if you focus on the facts and you focus on, you know, the reality and put 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 the context, put everything in context with the risks of energy gener generation across the piece, then I think we, we really do have a strong case. Should we be proud of our nuclear industry? 
Absolutely. We've been delivering baseload nuclear power for many, many years, incredibly safely and low carbon for many, many years. And we deliver, you know, we've got such a rich heritage of, of skills and capabilities in the UK to now move forward with this. We, we couldn't be better positioned for, for, a new, for a new nuclear industry. Brilliant there from Caroline, and I really appreciate her time. What do you think about the nuclear debate? I think some of you will probably agree with me that it's vital. We could have a very clean future very quickly if we went for it. Others, I I can understand your point of view. So get in touch, use the hashtag NetHeroPodcast. You can email us, nethero at futurenetzero.com. And of course, use the at futurenetzero handle on all our social media, LinkedIn and and do get in touch because we'd like to feature your story especially if you're in the world of business trying to do something on the net zero pathway next week we'll be looking at a really interesting article could climate change be changing our animals could we have elephants with ears the size of dumbo could horses end up with larger appendages plenty of questions have to tune in next week for the answers Until then, thanks for listening to the Net Hero podcast with me, Sumit Bose, and do stay in touch.